There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie morning the 23rd of november good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m this is michael reed on lmfm the state pension has been at 66 for quite some time now i think it's maybe 10 years um that that, that the retirement age state pension age in ireland has been 66 the retirement age as you know is as the taoiseach said they're 66 years of age the big surprise though in the last general election campaign was a public backlash against a plan that would have seen that increase to 67 by 2031 and then go up to 68 years of age by 2039 that meant that anyone who is 52 years of age or younger today would not be able to retire until they were 68. The public outcry that followed resulted in the government dropping that plan and as things stand today, everyone is entitled to retire and receive the state pension at 66. We did take a decision uh, that we wouldn't raise the pension age beyond 66. Other countries are doing that, reflecting the fact that demographics are changing. Uh, But we've decided not to raise the pension age to 67 uh, and that comes with a cost. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar told the Dáil yesterday that this additional cost on the pension bill will be funded by increases in PRSI. We'll have to cover that cost by increasing very gradually employers, self-employed and employees PRSI uh, over the course of the next number of years. And we've set out the schedule as to how that will be done uh, with the first increase of 0.1% um, in October of next year. And in a full year, that will cost the average worker about 45 or 50 euros. Uh, That is the cost uh, of not raising the pension age. uh, And that is a cost, I think, uh, that most people will be willing to bear. The Taoiseach was responding to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance, Piers Doherty, during leaders' questions in the Dáil yesterday. Piers Doherty joins us now. A very good morning to you. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. You were arguing with the Taoiseach about this, saying that the brickie who is out in the rain today laying bricks and building the houses that we need, or the hairdresser who'll be on their feet from nine o'clock till five o'clock today, or the person who'll slog it out on the factory floor this morning should have the right to retire at 65 and that they'll be disappointed in the government sticking at this retirement age of 66. Why do you believe that it is the case? 
Well, look, it is, as you said in your introduction there, it is because of public pressure and the fact that Sinn Féin put this on the political agenda in the run-up to the last election uh, that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been forced uh, to scrap their plans and undo the legislation because they passed the law to, to, to increase the pension age right up to 68, as you mentioned. Uh, public pressure has put massive uh, pressure on them and obviously they're afraid of the support that Sinn Féin has, has, has gathered in that election and since. Uh, and therefore, you see this type of response. But again, uh, they they have not gone the full uh, the full way in this because what the people, in my view, demand is they demand the right to retire at the age of sixty five. If they want to work on, then they should have that right, and they do have that right. But if they decide to give up, uh, give up their work, hang up their boots, then at that stage they should be able to access the state pension, and that's a right that everybody in this state enjoyed until Fine Gael came into power. It was Leo Varadkar's government uh, that actually ended the right of people being able to retire at the age of 65. Now, we have said for many, many years, we're actually the only party that have said you have to look at the issue of PRSI, we have to look at increases in terms of PRSI to deal with the shortfall that we're going to have in the in the years to come, but also mm. uh, to be able to uh, ensure that people have some of these type of rights. And it's, it's a pledge, and I said to the teacher yesterday, while he's not willing... Uh, to meet what I believe are the, the public demands and desires in this year. It is a, co- a clear and core commitment of Sinn Féin. If we get into government, then people will have that right. Because, look, I used to work in the construction sites many years ago. You know, if you're out, particularly at this time uh, of, of, of weather, if you're out and if you're labouring and, you, you know, your knuckles are white and you're, you can't feel your toes, you know, and, and by the time you're 65, I think you've, you've done your time, you've done your, you've paid your dues, you've paid mm. your taxes, and if you want to hang up your boots at that time, you should have that right. And it's the same way mm. with a lot of other manual uh, labour and manual employment that, okay, that, that but, people have paid but their so, that Someone has to pay for it, and let's talk about that, because uh, PRSI is paid by not just the employees, it's also paid by employers. Uh, and your suggestion is that employers should fund this reduction in the retirement age. Yeah, well, we put forward um, proposals, and we have done for every year, for example. So to reduce the, to, to, to give people the right to retire at the age of 65. There's two different things, Michael, and it's really important that listeners understand this, because sometimes people confuse this, um, is that when, when you reach the age of 66, you can draw your pension and you can continue to work. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who, at 65 years of age, decide to actually retire. So it's the right to retire. And that costs €130 million. We have shown how, by increasing employers' PRI, on the portion of wages that they pay their employers above €100,000, so it's employers that, in my view, have the shoulders to carry this, will actually more than fund this uh, by hundreds of millions of euros. So there will be more than that, which those that extra... Uh, revenue will help deal with the shortfall in terms of the social insurance fund. So politics is all about choices. And and we're very clear in terms of Sinn Féin that there is a choice here, there's a choice that can be made, there's a cost proposal, and this allows people the right to retire at the age of 65, and it's one that we would uh, deliver on. Okay, but in effect that means that a higher earner, despite uh, the payment being made by their employer, the higher earner, the worker, will end up paying uh, for the retirement of uh, those who are on lower incomes. Well, this is a, this is the proposal we have in relation to uh, in relation to the right to retire at the age of sixty five and how you'd fund that measure alone 
is actually on employers PRSI. So I understand, but but it, 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 it well it does fall on the employee in effect because when anybody is employing somebody, they look at the overall cost, and in that context, it'll impact on what somebody is paid. Will it not? It, it'll it won't impact on the on the take home pay of the individual. It'll, it'll basically be more expensive. Uh, for an employer, you're right, bit more expensive for so employer. So they may be paid less. No, well, look, these are people who are, as I said, they're, these are people who are earning over €100,000 in the first instance that yeah. we're talking mm. about. In, and maybe that's the right thing to do, but, 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 but the reality is, is that uh, lower earners uh, will be able to retire earlier at the cost of higher earners. Well, as I said, and I make this point, this isn't applying to earners, it's applying to employers. And why does it apply to employers? It applies to employers in the first instance because employers' PRSI in Ireland is less than half of what it is, what the average is in mm. Europe. Like in some countries in Europe, it's like it's 20% more than what we pay here in terms yeah. of employers' PRSI. And what Sinn Féin is arguing for isn't anywhere near taking as even close to the average. Why not, go after the what, self, what, why not go after the self-employed, though? Fine Gael went after the self-employed and gave them more entitlements uh, from uh, their lower PRSI payments, uh, 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 more uh, in line with those uh, who are PAYE workers. Well, first, first of all, Michael, this is about actually how you actually stage this this issue. We are the party who've argued for increases in employer PRSI. We've argued that we need to look at, particularly in relate and, and self-employed our employers, they employ themselves. Uh, so we we've made that argument at the time when Fine Gael were saying, you know, this was ridiculous. We couldn't be looking at PRSI. We were saying you have to have a sensible conversation. And like mm-hmm. many things, Fine Gael finally accept that Sinn Féin are right in terms of that. that you know that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil were wrong to push the pension age up to sixty-eight. That we needed to deal with PRSI. But like many things, they actually make then a mess of it when they're looking at the implementation. And it's not lost in people because the issue of pensions and how we fund pensions isn't something new. This was something that was being dealt with 20 years ago by their office. And you know what we did? And many of your listeners will know what we did at the time, what the government did at the time is they said, we're going to have a problem in terms of funding pensions. So let's set up a pension fund. That pension fund, the NTMA who managed that pension fund was in before the committee yesterday and said that fund, we're supposed to be drawn down from that fund in 2025, so in, in two years' time, we're supposed to be drawn down from that fund. And that fund today should have about €100 billion euro in it. But where did it go? Fianna Fáil put it into the bust banks. That's why That's why when you're when you're listening to what Leo Varadkar is saying, when you're hearing what Michael Martin is saying, the reason that this is happening is because they blew the fund that we had in terms of bailing out bust banks at the time, uh, and therefore now... The, the, the burden has to, has to fall. But we were being warned question. about the cost of the pension bill long before that because of an ageing population. I mean, it's a great thing. We're all living longer. Uh, but the idea, I think, when the pension was initially introduced by the British government uh, at 70 years of age, most people didn't live that long. So they'd never actually enjoy a pension. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly why the, the, the age was... The, was chosen, but things have moved on. And again, it goes back to this issue, which I believe is about fairness. And people may disagree with me, and that's fine. And people may disagree with Sinn Féin, and that's fine. But I genuinely believe that it's fair that if, if a worker who's working, you know, done their 40 years or whatever they're working at that stage, and they reach the age of 65, if they want to work on, then carry on. You know, and we need to, like, we've, we've, we've talked about getting rid of mandatory retirement ages and, and all of that. Mm. But if they want to retire at that age, they should have the right is that possible? Absolutely. Can that be funded? Without a doubt. It is about political choices. We're very clear in our choice. From the Gale are very are saying very clear to that bricky. 
to that hairdresser, to that worker in the factory mm. floor, no, we're not going to allow you to retire at the age of 65 with a pension. You used to be able to do that, but we're not allowing you to do that, and we think that's wrong. Yeah. And this roadmap that they announced yesterday, I think, is a blow to workers who felt that um, that 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 if that government finally listened and fi- if I heard the message during the 2020 mm. campaign that they wanted that right to retire. Yeah, and I mean, there is the other argument as well that the bricky and the hairdresser and the factory worker uh, started working much younger than uh, those who are sitting at desks this morning uh, for the most part uh, may have left school in their teens or early 20s uh, and not only have they been working longer and paying PRSI longer but they also paid their taxes which went to fund the education of those people who are sitting uh, at desks as I say today. Yeah, and look, you know, as I said to the teacher yesterday, it doesn't, you know, it's not um, insignificant that some of the people who made this decision around the cabinet table as ministers are able to retire on a full pension, way more than what a brick or a hairdresser will get. at the age of 50, yeah. Michael, at the age of 50 with a full pension. That's what ministers um, and, and, and TDs who were elected before 2004 are able to do, and many of them uh, in Cabinet are able to do that. So, you know, decisions being taken to, 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 to force the brickie, to force the hairdresser, to force the factory floor worker to work on to 66 when they themselves are able to retire on a full pension uh, at, the, at, at the age of 50, and, and that's not lost on anybody either. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. That is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance Pierce Doherty if you'd like to make comment on that we'd love to hear from you do you want to retire at 65 or uh, should it remain at 66 or indeed increase as was the original plan 0419832000 is our telephone number if you do want to comment if you want to ring us on 0419832000 we'd love to hear from you you can also send us a text on 0861800658 or WhatsApp that text to us on 0861800658 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there is some uh, disappointment today about uh, how there's a a delay in the release of some 50 women and uh, children that Hamas have held hostage in Gaza. That was to be in return for a four-day pause in the Israeli onslaught, as well as the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners, three times uh, the number of hostages. As I I say, there's some disappointment uh, about this, but let's speak to Oliver Sears. Uh, the founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. Good morning to you, Oliver, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Given how informed commentators are regarding this as a delay uh, and that there will be a truce and that that will be very soon, after seven weeks of war in Gaza, it's not a bad day, is it? Uh, absolutely. I'm really pleased to hear that uh, this vital progress has been made and of course um, the ceasefire has to continue in an ideal world and I understand that there is some uh, bargaining chip whereby for um, for every 10 hostages released um, Israel will continue the ceasefire for another day um, I just hope that um, political pressure in this small window will mean that the guns fall silent um, for a much longer period, if not permanently, and um, the very uh, green shoots of a political process can begin. Um, 
I am an optimist. It seems very, very dark right now. Um, but this initial is, um, is, of course, how all of these eventually come to an end. Indeed, it will end at some stage, but there is no uh, immediate uh, end in sight. When you listen to the Israeli Prime Minister speaking uh, about how once the four-day truce ends, it's back to the business of killing people. 14,000 people dead uh, at this stage. And he says uh, that Israel won't stop until Hamas is annihilated. It's a pretty daunting prospect, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's absolutely shocking. Um, if you're um, sitting in um, the uh, comfort of Ireland, um, it seems unbearable, particularly um, when we have seen how the violence of this country has come to an end through um, painful, painful political process. Um, The idea that basically the major cause of this conflict, I I would really lay so much blame at Netanyahu's feet. Um, He has divided Israeli society. He's cleaved it into, he's demolished the left wing. Um, He left those poor people in the kibbutzim and, and at, the, at the party completely exposed. It's no secret that they didn't fall into his demographic. And, of course, um, he has in his cabinet the kind of ultra-nationalists who um, simply see things in the most tribalistic way. What I am hoping and what I have read is that actually there could be a a heave against Netanyahu in this window because he is so vastly um, uh, kind of, or or he's enormously detested now uh, among huge swathes of Israeli society. He was the strong man who was supposed to protect Israel and of course he's failed to do that. And it was only, I think, a couple of days ago that he even um, had the grace, the the, the decency to, to meet the hostage families. So um, I, I have some hope. It's small at this stage, but, you know, um, uh, politics can move very, very quickly with this kind of febrile atmosphere. And I think that Netanyahu and, and this right-wing government, ultra-right-wing government, are clearly a busted flush. And there, there's no sense that any kind of peace or lasting peace could um, come about with this government in charge. So that's another little window of, of, um, of hope that I'm looking into. The racism is particularly awful, uh, being followed by the indiscriminate killing of civilians, seen, it would seem, by many uh, Israeli people, including the Prime Minister, as animals, uh, referring uh, to Palestinians as the Amaleks. Yes, I, I'm, I'm absolutely horrified at this language, at this um, 
demonization. Um, no, no good will come of this. Um, uh, he is, uh, Netanyahu, that is, is completely unfit for the office that he serves. Mm. Um, there has to be a political solution. I, I said this from day one. I called for a ceasefire day one. Um, Hamas have um, done what Hamas do. They are a brutal organization who have um, absolutely uh, no kind of moral compass when it comes to uh, meeting out violence. And they are, they have um, essentially uh, turned Israeli society upside down because Israeli society is, is built in a way that few of us can really understand, um, is built around the trust of its army, mm. which, um, which is the, the most important institution in the Israeli psyche. And it was found out, if you like, and failed in its duty. And uh, Hamas exploited this in w w with immeasurable, uh, with, with a kind kind of um, with a kind of barbarity that is simply it's hard for us to to fathom. Um, and appallingly, Israel has uh, replied in in a depressingly predictable way. Um, I, uh, I and so many people like me, so how would I describe myself? Mm. Uh, I, I would describe myself as um, a uh, secular Jew with a very particular history. I come from a, the legacy of the Holocaust. And um, I and people like me are completely heartbroken. We see the manifestations of anti-Semitism. We see opinions being um, aired by um, people with no idea what they're talking about. Um, and suddenly the atmosphere for Jews everywhere mm. um, is has has turned fearful it's um it shouldn't be like this um i i can't i mentioned that I reference to the amalekites uh, to you oliver intentionally as a, a person of jewish faith as a secular jew as you described yourself for our listeners it's a biblical reference uh, the amalekites were sorcerers who could transform themselves to resemble animals uh, the greatest enemy of the Israelites. So in order to get rid of the Amalekites, uh, the Israelites killed all the men, women, children and the animals for fear they had transformed into animals. As somebody who works to help us understand the values of democracy through contemporary perspectives, looking back on the Holocaust, do you see parallels with the Third Reich, with Nazism, with Hitler, with genocide, 
with that anti-Semitism and this racism that we're hearing from Israel at the moment, uh, there are people who are taking exception to the use of the word genocide in terms of what Israel is doing in Gaza at the moment. Do you figure among them? Yeah, I do take uh, exception. And I do take exception to parallels. Um, There are no parallels. This is a particular um, horrible conflict. Um, But the parallels drawn are... um, are in in many ways um, deliberately invoked because, unfortunately, the state in in this situation that is um, behaving as as the great oppressor, if you like, uh, happens to be Jewish. And... I, I don't see any parallels, and I, I would challenge anybody to tell me how a country that, uh, you, you know, look, very simply, and for me, I can, I can explain, I can see, I can sense this situation in all its nuances, because unlike a lot of people, I have skin in the game. Um, m- m- my my life is affected directly by events in Israel. So when I hear um, commentators talking in terms of um, similarities with the Nazis, I I beg them to stop making parallels that are completely. Um, inappropriate. The, the, a very cursory look at history will tell you that the Israeli state, for all the crimes it is currently committing, is not systematically rounding up Palestinians, Muslims, putting them in concentration camps and gassing them. Let's be absolutely clear that the word genocide was coined by a Polish lawyer called Raphael Lemkin in uh, 1946. He coined it in order to try and find the legal description of what had happened to the Jews in the Holocaust, to, to describe it in a legal way. And um, so he, he had hoped that it would be used for the Nuremberg trials. But in the end, um, they opted to, to use the, t- the term crimes against humanity, which had been developed by another Polish Jewish lawyer um, called Hirsch Lauterbach. Anyhow, genocide um, was invoked finally um, as as a crime, or, or adopted rather by the UN in 1948. But from my perspective, what I see is the very sinister um, attempt by commentators to take away 
the suffering of Jews like me, heirs to the Holocaust, to take away this term and to say, in fact, you know what? Um, what happened to you, given how the state of Israel is behaving now, is somehow warranted, and that the value of my grief um, is somehow nullified. And it's very, very sinister. It's very nuanced. And to be perfectly frank, many Jews who don't come from my background wouldn't understand it either. But there is no value other than to stir an age-old hatred against Jews by invoking that term now. And I, I, again, I, I really w would be happy to challenge anybody to tell me how this appalling behavior by um, an Israeli government has any parallel to what happened to the Jews of Europe in about 20 countries um, over a period of five and a half years, mm. actually 12 years if you go back to 33. Mm. Um, how, how, how on earth, how on earth is that similar? I just, I don't, I don't see it. Okay. Uh, and uh, just briefly, uh, to put the other side of that argument to you, Oliver, we're talking about people who are trapped. They can't get out. They're innocent. They're not members of Hamas. Uh, they have done nothing to anybody. They're going about their daily lives uh, and they're being slaughtered in their thousands, indiscriminately, 14,000 as we speak, men, women and children. Uh, and as mentioned earlier on, they're looked down on as inferiors. Uh, that's after seven weeks. In three years, if this continues, or four years or 12 years, as the case may be, how many people will be dead? Uh, and therein, I, I think... Uh, is the logic behind making that comparison or uh, I, talking I, about a parallel? Yes. I, my, my heart is broken. I wish this wasn't going on. I condemn it out of hand. But I also condemn um, lazy thinking. It helps nobody to to, to draw a ridiculous comparison for a very sinister reason. It, it must be possible to be a student of history without simply saying this terrible situation looks like this terrible situation, so they must be the same, without any kind of consequence. We, we, my history is is one absolutely shaped by effectively something like a thousand years of European anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, I, I live currently, like all Jews, in somehow the backwash of this crisis, this terrible war, um, which leaks anti-Semitism into... Uh, into every society again. If you, if, 
if you don't believe me, look at the statistics. Something like uh, a 1,500% rise in anti-Semitism. So my view is very simple in many ways. I call unreservedly for a ceasefire for political intervention, for a change in government in, um, in Israel. And again, for, I, I don't want to risk repeating myself, but mm. really stay away from lazy parallels. Mm. They cause more damage uh, than most people ever know. And my organization spends an awful lot of time and energy um, trying to promote empathy um, and understanding through bringing awareness of the Holocaust to an Irish society. Now it's more important than, than ever. And I, I would just ask people to read their history. Don't jump to um, easy, lazy conclusions. Okay. Uh, very difficult conversation, I think, for you. Thank you for having it with us. Uh, it, it comes as uh, the doll has been debating as to whether Israel should have been referred to the International Criminal Court for breach of uh, the Genocide Convention in a motion from People Before Profit. Uh, your uh, answer is very clear, uh, I think, uh, to anyone listening this morning, Oliver. And thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to speak to us. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oliver Spears is the founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments uh, that have come to us uh, this morning. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. One from John in Navin in relation to the Israeli Hamas conflict. And uh, John, not happy with the Taoiseach, saying that Israel has a right to defend itself. He says, This is like saying that the Nazis had a right to defend themselves during the Jewish ghetto uprising in 1943. Warsaw. The Palestinians are confined in the largest open-air ghetto in the world, so they live under the same conditions as the Jews in Warsaw lived under and shared the same frustrations. Is it any wonder that what happened on the 7th of October was brewing after so many years of being held as prisoners in their own land by a brutal regime like Israel with the blessings of the US? Thank you very much indeed, John, for that. Uh, I think Oliver Sears, uh, who we heard before the break, would take exception to that comment. I think that was very clear from what Oliver had to say. I think too that the Taoiseach would take exception to that as well, John, because the Taoiseach did say that Israel has a right to defend itself and he questioned that whether what's happening now is defence or whether it's aggression. Uh, And uh, I think uh, that uh, the Taoiseach has uh, been very critical of what Israel is doing in uh, Gaza, but uh, obviously not critical enough as far as a lot of people are concerned. I think that was clear uh, by the big march last weekend. Mag Y saying uh, that Sinn Féin are all things to everyone. She's not buying this idea that people should be able to retire at 65 and claim their pension if that's what they wish. They should have the right to do that. She says, God help Ireland if Sinn Féin becomes a government here. Another bankruptcy lies ahead, she says. Thank you indeed. Uh, Deirdre in Kells says... Uh, 
uh, people should be able to retire at 66 and get a cheque from the President. <laughs> how much, Deirdre? Uh, get back to us, Deirdre, would you, and tell us how much. It used to be £100, didn't it? Uh, I can't remember what it is now, but it's over 1000 and it's an odd figure at that. But uh, it's an interesting question, actually. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Deirdre. Somebody else in touch with us saying that my opening statement at the programme, uh, at the start of the programme regarding the state pension is not quite right. Uh, our caller, uh, this is Paul, he says, not every Irish person is entitled to their pension when they reach 66. I worked in private industry from the ages of 15 to 24. I then became employed by a state company who laterally became semi-state. In state and semi-state companies, you pay PRSI, but at a lower rate and consequently some of your benefits suffer as a result. When I retired after almost 40 years, I had a private pension for the semi-state company and when I reached 66, I was told I had no entitlement to claim a state pension. I contacted Citizens Information Services who concluded that the nine years I spent in the private industry should count for a portion of the state pension. So Michael, the decision of Intrio, uh, the Department of Social Protection, was that I receive 40% of a a full pension. But the very first week that I received my state OAP, my semi-state pension, was taxed. To say that the state pension system is complicated would be an understatement. You know people who are in similar situations to mine but receive both full private and full state pensions. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that, Paul. Uh, I think uh, there's no argument with that. Uh, I suppose uh, I was talking in generalities at uh, the beginning of the programme, but as I say, no argument with that and very hard to understand why people are left in a situation such as the one you're in. 0419832000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, confusion remains over the case into uh, the killing of a private... Um, I beg your pardon, over the killing of a private uh, Sean Rooney. A very uh, terrible story locally, obviously, and indeed one that has uh, gripped uh, the nation uh, after he was shot on peacekeeping duties in the Lebanon. It's an issue that has been raised with uh, the government by local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murku, who's on uh, the line with us. And a, a very good morning to you, Rory O'Murku, and thank you indeed for joining us. We know that a, a man has been under arrest in relation to the killing of Private Sean Rooney. Uh, what's the latest on this? Yeah, well, um, Mohammed Ayed is, is the name of the man, and literally he was the... There's a number who've been named in, in court but hadn't shown up, um, but he has been uh, released, and I found out about this, and I obviously put in a question to the Taunishta, um, in fairness, that, as you can see from the answer, the Taunishta and his department discovered this from a media report. Um, I'll be honest, they, they made communication fairly quickly to the family, which is, which is absolutely vital. Um, but, but I think it's quite easy to say um, this guy was given bail. Um, it's on a medical basis, we are told. But see the fact that there was no information provided in any way, shape or form um, to say people are annoyed and fed up and thinks this isn't in any way all right is is, is the truth. And in fairness, I, I did speak to Michal mm-hmm. Martin even after I, I had uh, obviously the public interaction and you know, he he made the point of of how annoyed he was, and that there will be absolute follow up. And the follow up is on the basis of 
as the state has said, they, they, they owe it to the memory and the sacrifice that Sean Rooney made that we would seek justice for him and, and his family. Um, but even beyond this, this is about... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, I suppose the fact of the wider issue of our peacekeepers and making sure we see right by them and what we're dealing with at this point in time is in no way good enough. Now, I, I, I think we are always wary in relation to, obviously, particularly the uh, Israeli onslaught on Gaza um, that there were and the possibilities of an escalation within the area that this could impact in relation to the uh, the judicial process. And in fairness, none of us can comment absolutely specifically on, on what is a a, a judicial um, process. Um, but but the fact is, this is all very strange, and there hasn't been a sufficient amount of information. It's all very worrying, and we need to ensure that whatever interactions can be made with the Lebanese authorities are. Um, for whatever use they may be, and then also the UN, because at the end of the day, Sean Rooney uh, died on a UNIFIL operation. Yeah, we, we don't know what's wrong with this guy, do we? We don't know if he needs surgery or what the problem is? No, no, no. no. Yeah, but you'd, just, assume, you, you'd assume it's something uh, on that scale, would you not? Right. Well, well, if it is something on that scale, that's fine. I say where you're just yeah. everyone is somewhat apprehensive and you're far more apprehensive from the point of view that he was released and the information wasn't relayed um, to the department. Now, in fairness, mm. there's eyes on that have been there in relation to obviously um, there's uh, there are um, there is a legal team that has been taken on board uh, combined with obviously eyes on from um, embassy in uh, Cairo and mm. And, and the people we have in Beirut. And we need to ensure that, that, that those eyes on remain. Yeah. As I say, we, you, you, we don't you, have full you, control you know, over you, that. We no, know we, no, but you don't know the answer, but the Irish government doesn't know the answer to that either. And the no, Irish no, government no. is trying to establish the facts in relation to this. Uh, the family are being kept up to date, are they? The, 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 the family have been kept up to date now. They're obviously... Uh, you know they can't. They're not particularly happy with how this happened. They're not particularly happy with the you know the information that they have. But like as I say, the thing is, the Irish government aren't particularly happy as they shouldn't be with the lack of information. And and as uh, Michal Martin said to myself, both in uh, private and in public, that they, they are going to seek these answers and they need they, they, they need to get them. Mm. And then we just need to make sure that everything is done as best that can be, while accepting there are particular issues in that part of the world. 
um, and you're talking about Lebanon at this point in time. Yeah. You know, we, we know the issues there are with the state and we know the power also that Hezbollah has within uh, w- within Lebanon. Yeah, and if it'll become a, another front in uh, this ongoing war uh, that Israel has with Palestinians, if it can be put that way. Uh, uh, and you asked about the security situation in Lebanon, given the, uh, the concerns that were raised uh, by the head of the UNIFIL mission. Yes, no, no, no. Like here, we we all ourselves, like from watching the news, and 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 we're all worried about a wider regional escalation. And the fact is, we need, like, we know the importance of our peacekeeping operations, and and an awful lot of them can be about regional, smaller level de-escalations, um, and they're dealing with all the stakeholders, for the want of better terms, uh, on you know, particularly on the blue line and and those particular border areas where we really don't need some small conflagration to expand into uh, something wider. But we also need to make sure, because I've spoken about this in relation to uh, the tragic death of uh, of Sean Rooney, that we need to, from that point of view, make sure we have the right procedures, the right protocols, the right resources and equipments, communication equipment, whatever is necessary. So I want to make sure that this is being looked at from a point of view by the Defence Forces, by the wider UN uh, Tasking Force, and then um, and, and that obviously that the government is keeping um, absolutely vigilant because and we make sure that if there is anything we need to change in relation to how we operate, that that is done from a point of view mm. of uh, protecting our peacekeepers, but also that they can best operate at this point in time. Yeah. And we know the absolute mm. importance of it. Yeah, and what might our peacekeepers be doing? If uh, the Lebanon became a second or a third front, as uh, the case may be, uh, is it that the Irish peacekeepers uh, may be uh, acting in defence of Israel against Hezbollah or vice versa? Well, look, I think we're getting into that scenario of the reason that Irish peacekeepers um, and, and even here. Part of the reason, I suppose, that, that Ireland is seen as a straight player, it's, it relates to our you know, uh, our history as being uh, the colonised rather than the coloniser, that to a degree we're not seen as being absolutely uh, in uh, military uh, in military partnerships with some of the superpowers and the piece of work that our uh, peacekeepers have been able to do. And that is about remaining neutrally, neutral and it's certainly not being about being on the side of protagonists, particularly when we get into a war situation. As I say, what they do yeah. is well, we mainly don't get from into a war point situations. of view... You know, we, we, don't get into, we don't get into war situations. Uh, at least we don't get involved in conflict. Uh, uh, we get involved uh, in peacekeeping. Yes, no, 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 very much so. And it's an absolutely necessary piece of work. And like I said, there's there's the matter of protecting civilians. There's a matter of actually monitoring and making sure that people aren't carrying out actions which could lead to further actions, whether we're talking about the players we've talked about before, whether we're talking about the Israelis or Hezbollah or anybody else. And also very small border disputes or mm. an issue at a checkpoint, as we all know, okay. can escalate into something far wider. So that's the piece of work. Yeah. Basically, it's nipping that off at the bud, but we need to do it in a way that we protect our peacekeepers, but we also give them all those resources and protections we possibly can to do the job and to stay safe, as safe as is possible, because I think you have to recognise a very dangerous part of the world and a very dangerous job that they do and it's professionalism and courage is the reason why we haven't had uh, more fatalities and I think in fairness I was in um, 
I was in Sean's grandparents' house and I saw the letter that had been sent by Antonio Guterres and, and it, it went into the detail of, you know, obviously commending them for their grandson and the, but also even in relation and I think this was said by a number of his uh, comrades, if it wasn't for his actions on that day, things could have been a lot worse. Stay with me if you can, please Rory Marco, because uh, the role of Irish peacekeepers may be about to change. Uh, indeed, the role of the Irish Defence Forces may be about to change. People will remember the Consultative Forums on International Security Policy. That was the grand title for these talk shops uh, that were established by the Tánaiste Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Fáil. And there was a lot of concern that this was a cynical move by a government intent on ending Irish neutrality. Some said it was a thinly veiled move on the part of the government to end Irish neutrality. Yesterday, the doll heard statements on these forums and the result is that the people who said that the forums were set up as a first step towards Ireland's neutrality are now saying, I hate to say, I told you so. We cannot just revert to sound bites. We have to be honest about the fact that in respect of many of the worst crises internationally, where rapid, impartial and decisive international action is desperately needed, the council has not been able to act. Michal Martin was not short of sound bites himself yesterday. As matters stand, the legislation governing the dispatch of contingents of the Defence Forces for overseas peace support operations ensures that these may only take place where that deployment is approved by the government. Approved by Doyle resolution if the proposed deployment is more than 12 personnel and that the operation in question is mandated or authorised by the United Nations. Yes, and that's what's called the triple lock. In 2001, people were very concerned about Ireland's membership of the European Union and the prospect of Ireland's defence forces being dragged into European conflicts or EU battle groups or EU rapid response units. There was even talk of a united European army. The fear was the reason that the government lost a European referendum. 23 years ago, the Irish government asked the people to vote in favour of the Nice Treaty in a second vote. In return for the people's support, the government introduced the triple lock, ensuring that EU membership did not equal Irish boys going to war for Europe. The referendum was passed then. In effect, this triple lock system hands the five permanent members of the Security Council, Security Council members a veto of our national sovereign decision to deploy troops to peacekeeping missions as we see fit. Yeah, and that was the guarantee that the government gave to the people of Ireland back in 2001. Of course, as we saw over the course of the forum, there is no single consensus over how to proceed with the triple lock. But we saw ample evidence of other options on how to allow agility and responsiveness while ensuring our actions comply with the highest standards of international law. And that may be because of how the forum was made up or how people would say that what you've just heard there was according to the Hawks on the forum. Micheál Martin put that forum in place, Cynic said, in order to make exactly the argument he was making yesterday. It would therefore make sense, I believe, to amend our existing legislation in a manner which would allow us to respond to crisis situations with more agility and we're in making these important decisions, we are not surrendering, surrendering our sovereignty. 
Then came the bombshell. It is now certain a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach Bertie Ahern introduced the triple lock and it is a Fianna Fáil leader, Micheál Martin, who is now going to get rid of it. I have therefore instructed officials in the Department of Defence to prepare legislative proposals without delay that would govern the future overseas deployments of our defence forces. These could, for example, allow us to dispatch Defence Forces personnel to multilateral missions overseas where these are organised by a regional organisation such as the European Union or African Union or where the host country is requesting such support from the international community. That's uh, Tanisha. Uh, Ruria Muraku, uh, when you heard what Michal Martin had to say in the Dáil yesterday, did it come as a bombshell to you? Well, um, it, unfortunately it didn't, in the sense there's been a considerable amount of this type of cons, uh, conversation and almost uh, drift. Now, we had our particular issues in relation to how the Consultative Forum was set up, and we thought that really this is a conversation that needed to happen to, with the Irish people. I, I think there have been certain people, such as our President Michael D. Higgins, that have been absolutely clear and, in fairness, expressing the view that is coming back in every poll that is taken. But, like, see, after all well, of Well, before all the, the forums were set up, just to add to what you've just said, 61% of the people told an Irish Times poll they want Irish neutrality to remain exactly as it is today. Yes, and what I'm going so to say So it seems is, that the Tonnes just defined the people. Well, yeah, and see if you actually talk about the report that came out, and again, it's, there's not a huge amount of information at times in it other than here's what happened and here are the speakers what they said, but a considerable majority of those who spoke or wrote on this topic expressed the view that there is presently no public appetite for change to the current position on neutrality. Like, I, I think that's what says it all, even their own... Uh, consultative forum that was set up in a particular way and that we wouldn't have been particularly happy with. Now, there was a wide conversation and a number of people would have written submissions and also engaged. I engaged myself with it. Um, But the fact is the Irish people have not moved from the point of view of what we want to see is an independent foreign policy. We want to see uh, the fact that neutrality is something that is cherished and it should be retained. But Micheál Martin is saying, Micheál Martin will argue that this will not impact on neutrality. This will just allow the Irish government uh, to engage in peacekeeping in ways that may be prevented now by way of vetoes from Russia or China. Well, he would need to get into the very specifics of what particular operations that he's talking about, because I haven't seen anything where this has actually impacted. And on some level, we can talk and we can cry and we can, you know, about particular issues we have to get a net result. The triple lock, that means if 12 or more Defence Forces troops are going to be deployed on active overseas missions, um, they need the approval from the Dole, the government and authorization from the UN. You know, that also means they have an element of credibility because you're there on behalf of the UN. And I think whatever we talk about particular issues and cooperation across Europe, because I don't think he's talking about we're going to be putting Irish troops at the behest of an operation for the African Union. This is about the European Union. And if anybody thought that uh, we would get some sort of consensus in relation to the European Union from being on the right side as regards taking um, actions as regards humanitarian, international law and all the rest of it and just being on the moral right side, well, I think they've shown an abject and utter failure in relation to what is going on with the Israeli, um, with the Israeli genocidal acts at this point in time in, uh, in the Gaza Strip.
you know, with a long history, obviously, of apartheid and, and annexation. And we, like, unfortunately, Ireland has been almost one of the small number of voices that have talked against it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we need the government, to, obviously, to take further action. And what we certainly don't need is to jettison um, to jettison uh, military neutrality. And then... When and what what do you mean this, by that? What, the, just spell that out. What, what do you mean by that? Jettison I'm, Irish neutrality. What is... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, 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 I was just going to say, because there is one particular operation. It's the Undoff operation in the Golden Heights, and, and we know the particular issues that have pertained there for many years, mm. where the Irish, uh, where the Irish government have made a, a decision to disengage, and they have decided to disengage so we can be part of uh, EU uh, battle group um, operations. And the problem is for them only 35 members of the Defence Forces have actually signed up for that particular operation, yeah. as opposed to the peacekeeping. And Micheál Martin, in the middle of his speeches and, and here over the last number of days, I've heard him use lines like there is, and, you know, there is no more noble act than peacekeeping. You know, when we were engaging in relation to uh, into Sean Rooney or, or what our Unifil troops are doing at this point in time, but we need to see the same sort of action, right? What we are told about, sometimes arguments are put up in the sense of if we have an evacuation operation that we would need, um, we would need Security Council OK in relation yep. to that. But the fact is, the fact is, we don't believe that's the case. But beyond that, see if there are already derogations uh, in relation to uh, the defence forces, if mm. it's from a point of view sport or ceremonial or, or, or other scenarios. See if we have to add one or two derogations that relate to those protection um, operations where mm. you maybe protect a minister in a place that's that's dangerous. I don't see any issue with that. Okay. And I don't I don't see any issue in relation to well, an evacuation let, let, situation as much as we don't believe let's it's talk about pulling, let's, let's talk about pulling triggers uh, and dropping bombs and that sort of uh, thing, uh, which uh, is really at the root of neutrality and us not participating in that sort of thing or putting very young Irish boys in the line of fire. Um, the first step in this change in defence policy was the establishment of these forums. The second step was Michal Martin's speech yesterday. The next step is today, when the Irish Times, at least, uh, reports Irish Defence Force members are going to be offered allowances uh, to join European battle groups. In other words, they're going to pay them to sign up. Uh, and after that... because they couldn't get them to do it. Yeah, but a- after, you know? after that, everything is on the table, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing to say that Irish troops couldn't be fighting alongside Ukrainians against the Russians. Now, I, I know that's a considerable amount of, of, of jumps for that to happen. But, but, the without, the, is, but well, without the triple law. Without the protections. I know I, I, that is why we need to maintain those protections that we have at this point in time. See if there's particular legislative nuances that need to be dealt with. As I say, derogations uh, in relation to the triple lock that relate to evacuation operations. Nobody's going to have a particular difficulty. But see for something that's as important as this in relation to neutrality and peacekeeping and the fact that we can maintain an independent foreign policy like we have, like we one of the few states that have called out some of what the Israelis have done. Now, as much as I would like the state to be a lot stronger, and I think hopefully it will into the future, because some of the issues we deal with with Israel is the fact it has never been held to account. And I think a first step would be obviously referring it to the ICC, as South Africa did. Um, But the fact is, we certainly, to maintain that independent foreign policy, we need to make sure that we maintain credibility 
um, we want to be involved in UN peacekeeping operations. We do not want to be at the behest of superpowers, the European Union or anybody else. And the Irish people want to make sure that those protections are in place. And if Micheál Martin or Leo Varadkar or anyone else wants to have this conversation, the people to have it with is the Irish people. And that is by way of referendum. Now, if we will need to have a discussion, as I say, in relation to any anomalies that need to be dealt with, I think you'll find the opposition and everyone else will be fairly forthcoming on stuff that is reasonable. But we cannot move away from what is absolutely cherished, and you said it yourself in many, many polls, that the Irish people are fully in to the fact that we are independent foreign policy and we are not at the behest of superpowers and the former colonisers of the world. Um, and okay. that we maintain okay. absolute well, the, the, this, the, this conversation is on very much so now. Uh, I agree. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll have much more discussion uh, before this legislation is introduced, uh, which Michal Martin promised yesterday. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Murku. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, earlier in the programme we were speaking to Oliver Sears, who's uh, the founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. And if you were listening, you'd have heard Oliver object to the way people before profit have been referring to what's happening in Gaza as genocide. This is part of what Oliver Sears was objecting to. The Genocide Convention requires states, obligates states, to take all measures to prevent the commission of genocide if they reasonably believe a genocide may take place or if there is incitement towards genocide. And then we have the Deputy Speaker of the Israeli Parliament says, burn Gaza. This week he said it. Burn Gaza. We are being too humane. Uh, Netanyahu described the Gazans as Amalek. This is a reference to the Hebrew Bible and uh, the Israelites' slaughter, uh, injunction to slaughter men, women, children and animals. All of them. It's a biblical reference and everybody in Israel knows what it means. This is, uh, we have uh, Gallant saying, you're human animals. They have said, we will bring you only destruction. Uh, We had uh, Ben Giver on television this week saying, we shouldn't give the Gazans water. And I wanted all of the Gazans to get lice. To get lice. I mean, this is sick. We have TV presenters in Israel on national television saying we are going to destroy you all. We're going to come after uh, Lebanon. We are going to uh, uh, come after anybody who even shows sympathy with the Palestinians in the West, right? So there is a multitude of evidence from the Israeli military and government saying they are going to commit genocide and we have evidence of genocide and we have all of the genocide experts, academics, the UN Commission, the UN Special Rapporteur all saying What we're looking at is an intention to commit genocide. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to act as you were required to do, to do everything to deter it? 
I'll just read what the ICJ said on this. A state's obligation to prevent and the corresponding duty to act arise in the instant that the state learns of or should normally have learned of the existence of a serious risk that genocide will be committed. From that moment onwards, if the state has available to it means likely to have a deterrent effect on those suspected of preparing genocide or reasonably be suspected of harboring intent to commit genocide, uh, genocide, it is under a duty to make such use of these means as the circumstance permit. Thank you you have a requirement, what are you going to do? Otherwise you are guilty of allowing the most obscene crime possible, genocide, take place. That's Richard Boyd Barrett of uh, People Before Profit uh, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Smoking kills. Around 4,500 people will die this year because they smoked cigarettes. About 4,500 smokers died last year and the year before and the year before that. And no doubt 4,500 smokers will die again next year because of uh, their addiction to nicotine and the way that they smoke cigarettes. Hopefully in years to come that will reduce. In fact, I suppose we all hope that in years to come nobody smokes and nobody dies because of their smoking habit. And this week the government is going to start a consultation period. It'll be asking people if they agree that they should increase the age that you are legally entitled to buy cigarettes at from 18 to 21, of course, uh, lots of children buy cigarettes these days or get someone to buy them for them, but legally the age is 18 uh, and uh, the intention is to increase that to 21 years of age. So what do you think? You're welcome to let us know and we'll get some views on this now. Mark Murphy is uh, the Advocacy Manager for Environmental Health and Tobacco with the Irish Heart Foundation and John Mallon, spokesperson for the pro-smoking group Forest Ireland. They're both on the line and good morning to both of you. Mark Murphy, first of all, do you agree that the age that you can legally buy cigarettes at should be increased to 21 years of age. Uh, absolutely. Um, the Irish Heart Foundation have been leading the campaign for the last two, three years, uh, calling on the government to increase the legal age of sale from 18 to 21. So we're delighted to see that the government have announced a consultation on this matter. Uh, we know from evidence from the US where uh, a federal law introduced Factor 21 in 2019, we have evidence from that from the USA that shows that increasing legal age reduces youth smoking, reduces youth initiation, and it actually reduces teenage smoking. Because as you said, a lot of teenagers get um, uh, purchase cigarettes from their friends. But if we increase the legal age of smoking from 18 to 21, a lot of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds wouldn't actually know 21-year-olds. So it would reduce teenage smoking. So it would benefit youth health. It would reduce youth initiation. And overall, it would actually be a huge benefit to the health service because it would reduce the amount of smokers there are in Ireland. And you're talking about how um, there's been a, um, there's a, we, we hope for a day that there will, there will be no more uh, smoking and tobacco in Ireland. Well, the sad fact is that the decline in smoking has stalled at 18%. And without landmark legislation like Tobacco 21, we will not see a decline in smoking further. We've been at 18% for the last few years. And we only, we've only seen a previous decline from landmark legislation like this, the workplace smoking ban, um, the plain packaging. So introducing Tobacco 21 would be a benefit for health, for the environment and for the health service. It would be a triple win. And most importantly, it's backed by every single member of the public according to, according to surveys. So we, we strongly agree with it. And we know that the public wants it as well. Both young people, 
smokers and every single member of the public. Okay, John Mallon, uh, do you agree that the legal age that people can buy cigarettes at should be increased to 21? Good morning, Michael. Um, can, I, can I set the record straight there? You introduced us as a, a pro-smoking lobby. Uh, we're not pro-smoking, never have been. We've never advocated smoking, uh, either publicly or privately. Uh, that's very important. We're a rights-based organisation, so uh, we would defend rights. Now, in this instance, uh, we're looking at smoking rates falling across all age groups for decades, Michael. Maybe there's been a blip now for a few years where it stays at 18%, but in, in the main, smoking is, is going out of fashion. Um, and in fact, uh, teenagers looking for, 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 uh, for, for cigarettes are actually looking for e-cigs now instead. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I think you'll see over the next 10, 20 years, uh, smoking basically phasing out of its own accord. But this one, I suppose, is, is a little different in that you're talking about um, people at 18 years of age. At 18, you, you, you turn, you turn to be an adult. Uh, and with all the rights um, that, that go with being an adult in this country and indeed all the responsibilities that go with it, um, and you could you can vote, you can drive a car, you can join the the, the, the army or the Gordi, Um and you take your place in society as 18. You're finished with school, um, and to suddenly turn around and say no, 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 you must be 21. You at 18 you have a right to to, to buy tobacco in a shop if if you choose to do so. Now, now you would prefer uh, that 18 year olds have heard all the messages about smoking and wouldn't do so, but you do have the right. Uh, and you have the right not to, of course. Uh, so we w- we would see it in that light. Um, and of course, well, that, that, it, that, 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 that sounds very, very like a pro-smoking group. No, it's not pro-smoking. It's pro-rights. You, you are a pro-smoking group. You're funded by the tobacco industry, for God's sake. Funded by the tobacco industry because we represent smokers. There isn't a, a voice for smokers in this country. And smokers have rights too, Michael. Uh, and over the years, you and I have debated well, that. Well, they have a right to kill themselves, I suppose, uh, Mark Murphy, you would say? Um, well, the, the, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. You can't compare um, the, the right to smoking to other rights, such as um, the right to, to vote, to marry, or to join the, join the National Service, because the right to marry, vote, or join the National Service are seen as quite uh, positive or beneficial rights, when the, the right or the perceived right to smoking... Um, actually, smoking kills half its users, and the fact that tobacco uh, contains nicotine, one of the most addictive substances uh, on the planet, uh, actually reduces your autonomy, reduces your actually your free will. The younger you start smoking, the one, younger you, you use nicotine, the more addictive you will become to nicotine, and the harder it will be to quit. Mm. Um, the simple fact is, like, even in the US, where they introduced Tobacco 21, the, the tobacco companies actually backed um, tobacco 21. They were in favour of uh, Tobacco 21 in the US, probably for cynical reasons, because they saw where the wind was blowing. But even amongst the, the surveys that the HSC conducted, I'm looking at it now, 70% of the Irish public uh, support uh, Tobacco 21. Among 15 to 17-year-olds, um, that support was 72%. And among uh, users who use tobacco products in Ireland, 64% were in favour of Tobacco 21. So the fact is that smokers actually are in favour of this Everyone's in favour of this because we know the huge detrimental effects that smoking yeah. has for your health, for the environment, and also why for not, why not go further? Why not, ban, why, why, not go, why not go further? Why not ban cigarettes altogether? Well, 
and at the Irish Harp Foundation, we actually believe that Ireland should look towards the UK and New Zealand, where they have a strategy in place to actually kind of phase out the sale of uh, uh, tobacco eventually. And that would be reducing the nicotine content in cigarettes, reducing the number of locations that you can buy uh, tobacco by 90% as they are doing in New Zealand, mm. and actually looking at um, um, uh, banning uh, the sale of uh, cigarettes for those born after a certain year. So yeah. we think Tobacco 21 is the first step towards that. Okay. And we think the Irish government should follow the UK government and New Zealand and plan for a tobacco endgame. Let me go back to John Allen if, if I can. No because there's lots of, of legislation in place aimed at protecting people from themselves, if you like, John. Uh, speed limits, a, a good example. Uh, is it not right and proper uh, to prohibit people from buying a product that will lead to ill health and death? Well, you, you see, it doesn't actually prohibit them, Michael. As you and I well know, if they, if they can't uh, buy the legal stuff, uh, they can buy the illegal stuff. And that isn't a problem in this country or indeed in any country. Um, because the price of tobacco has been put up so high, um, there's a huge profit margin in there for the, the, the criminal gangs. And I've read uh, on the newspapers about criminal gangs switching from hard drugs to, to smuggling tobacco. And would that be um, your concern that instead of uh, the tobacco industry making the, their profits off uh, young people's ill health, that it would be criminal gangs who would be profiting off it? I know, Michael. I am not. Look, all I'm saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Is, that's, is the way that I, that's, that, that's the way I heard it. I'm sorry. Yeah. It no, is. okay. Well, uh, what I'm actually saying is, if, if you can't buy the stuff legally in the shop, you can buy it illegally. If you if 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 you you, you want it that badly, um, you can you can buy um, illicit drugs uh, in this country, hard drugs, uh, and they're illegal. But most We're people don't. About... But most people don't because they're illegal. Because most people are law-abiding, young and old, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. But but I, I would be against bringing in the law uh, in this case because at eighteen you're an adult. Uh, are you saying it's twenty-one you're an adult? And and the other thing is well, that's what they're doing in New Zealand, isn't it? And as time goes on, you'll have to get older and older before you buy cigarettes until eventually you, you, <laughs> there'll be nobody old enough to buy cigarettes. Well, you, you, you point to New Zealand. Uh, this isn't what they're doing in France or Germany or Italy or any of our EU partners. Um, in fact, there's, uh, the UK and New Zealand are the only two countries that are, that are looking at this at the moment. Um, I don't see why we should necessarily follow uh, the, the, the minority group in this. But uh, again, I would say, um, how do you police something like this? What are the Gordies supposed to do? Is this mm. another law that they have to enforce and how do they go about it? Yeah, all right. Um, then let's put that to Mark Murphy. What's the point in this nanny state uh, approach if it can't be policed? Uh, well, the simple fact is that when we increased the legal age of smoking from 16 to 18, there was no issue with that. And we know there would be no issue in enforcement. It would be, be down to the retailers to enforce it. And where it's been brought in other jurisdictions, they haven't had any uh, strong difficulty. But what and about the point that John made there, that you'll find Yumflas buying cigarettes on the street at street corners illegally, and God knows what's in them. Uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, very dodgy cigarettes with all sorts of things that are swept up off uh, the factory floor or put in to pad them out uh, that are more damaging than the legitimate cigarettes, if you like. Well, the, the simple fact is that even manufactured cigarettes are probably the worst thing you can do to your body. So there's the, 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 there is actually not much that difference. But that's a kind of a scare tactic used by a lot of the, um, the, the tobacco industry at times. 
when we brought in the workplace smoking ban, they claimed it would lead to job losses and it would fuel the black market. Same with plain packaging. Same with every single time we have a tobacco tax increase. When we know that that's the most effective way to reduce smoking, that's just kind of a, a normal industry scare tactic. So they'll use it for every um, every kind of argument against a tobacco control measure. When we know tobacco control measures actually reduce uh, smoking, it helps the uh, uh, public health, it helps the health service. When we know the health service is on its knees, and the simple fact is that the Irish public want this. The Irish mm. public want a uh, tobacco 21. The Irish public see the benefit of reducing smoking and they are in favour of this. Okay. That includes smokers, the public and young people. Well, maybe, John, you'd want to come back on that. This is what people want uh, and they want to protect people and the evidence is there that it reduces smoking between the ages of 18 to 20 because you can't buy them until you're 21. Uh, and the evidence is actually there that it reduces smoking amongst 15 to 17-year-olds uh, apparently, because they don't know anyone old enough to buy cigarettes for them. Yeah, but the, 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 the rates have been falling anyway and will continue to fall. Uh, I, w- I would see in 10 or 20 years' time they'll, 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 there won't be tobacco available in the shops in this country. And that's a reality. Uh, they've, been, they, they've been falling from a high of 70% at one time in the 70s. Um, so the, the, the number of smoking is falling naturally. And as a fashion for school kids now, uh, cigarettes aren't fashionable any longer, um, but e-cigarettes are, and, and some illicit drugs uh, are as well. So should e-cigarettes be increased to 21 or 25 or 30 or banned? No, I would see e-cigarettes being um, uh, being banned for under 18s. I think that's a very good idea. I don't know why okay. the government is dragging their feet on that. Well, maybe we'll conclude on that, Mark. An age limit for uh, e-cigarettes? Oh, um, if it was the Irish Heart Foundation's uh, position, we would increase the legal age of smoking and e-cigarettes from 18 to 21. There is no reason why... E-cigarettes too. Exactly. That's the way we would like it. Obviously, the government isn't looking at that, but we would take, at the moment, uh, smoking to be increased to 21. But we think e-cigarettes should also be increased to 21. But the simple fact is that um, smoking, the, the, the rate of decline of smoking has actually stalled in recent years. And we would have we would have only seen uh, previous declines of smoking with landmark legislation like the workplace smoking ban, like plain packaging, mm. like tobacco tax increases. And if we want to actually um, kickstart the decline of smoking again, we need landmark legislation like uh, Tobacco 21. And the fact is okay. that teenage smoking has actually increased in recent years, and that that gives an even greater onus to introduce Tobacco 21. Okay. We to won't protect teenagers. We won't get any agreement here. Good to hear both sides. Thank you both for joining us on the program today. Mark Murphy, advocacy manager. Uh, for environmental health uh, and tobacco with the Irish Heart Foundation and John Mallon, spokesperson for Forest Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Deirdre was back to say you get over €3,000 if you reach 100 and it should be given to people at 66. Mick uh, in touch saying it's over two and a half thousand. Uh, I think Mick is right. It's called the Centenary Bounty and according to the President's website, if you reach 100, this is for Chris Murray, if you reach 100, you get €2,540. It used to be £100 when you reached 100, uh, but a, a lot more now. Uh, we'd uh, somebody else in touch with us uh, with a lot of people in touch with us actually I'm just trying to find uh, my place on the screen uh, about oh yes the speed limits on Scarlet Street in Drogheda what's with this says uh, somebody they've upped the speed to 60 kilometres an hour from 50 and then you put two fried eggs on the road as an excuse for ramps can you please get somebody on the radio and tell us what the criteria for placing these on the roads is they're called speed cushions I know that because of a 
recent conversation we had that's the very small speed ramps that yeah, you can drive over uh, if uh, you <laughs> put them in the middle of your wheels in other words uh, we had uh, Jerry Brady in touch with us saying all cigarettes should be banned in this country and worldwide uh, another text from somebody saying the state contributory pension is based on the number of contributions paid people who, who are now 66 uh, and started work at 15 or 17 that's 48 to 50 years contributions paid by the time that they are 66 uh, we'd uh, somebody else saying what about all of the people who never worked a day in their life and they get the non-contributory pension which is only 10 euro less uh, and uh, that all goes all that goes with it uh, who'd be interested in working in this country thanks indeed for that then we had Tony in loud in touch with us uh, and he was uh, talking about uh, genocide and uh, the objections uh, that we heard from Oliver Sears uh, he says he sounded uh, as though he was a fairly level headed guy uh, but uh, Tony says by all accounts uh, that's what it, it appears to be uh, I, the message has gone off my screen uh, sorry about that uh, just one last comment uh, we'll give it to Paul Shields in Dulik who took the time to text to call me names in line uh, with uh, the anatomy of males uh, I'm one of them apparently and if people don't agree with my opinion he says I say they're wrong I don't know I think you're wrong Paul <laughs> that's all I can say uh, but he also says uh, at 18 you have the right to make up your own mind on cigarettes he says he never smoked and it's about Right. Thank you very much indeed. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.